The restaurant industry has been fighting for survival over the last two years, and our greatest resource in this fight has been our people. The men and women who have poured, served, seated, greeted, and worked tirelessly to keep our industry going. Yelp for Restaurants believes now is the perfect time to recognize their efforts and give back to those that have given us so much with the creation of The Servies, a first-of-its-kind set of awards celebrating front-of-house workers. Winners receive a beautifully designed Servies trophy, a free pair of snib shoes, and a $3,000 tip. That's right. $3,000 in their pocket. Know someone deserving of a service award? Maybe they work at your restaurant. Visit theservies.com today and nominate them for a chance to win. Let's support the service industry together. Do so by nominating someone today. No purchase necessary. Must be 18 or older and a U.S. resident. Eight nominated contest winners will receive a prize of $3,000. Nominations must be submitted between August 3rd, 2022 and August 24th, 2022. See official rules available at theservies.com. Now here we go. So this notion of living with purpose is living with intentionality. It's really understanding why we're alive in that moment in time and what we should get extract from that moment in time, what we can give to that moment in time. And if we do that, we become infinitely more successful. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators served up on the house. Warren Rustan is the most successful human I know. Warren is a basketball hall of famer. He served U.S. presidents, been the CEO of 10 companies and mentor to countless CEOs. And candidly, he's been an amazing father, husband, and friend. In his spare time, Warren's also a philanthropist and community leader. And I share all of that to share this. You can too. You can accomplish everything you want in this world. And today, Warren will give you the tactics, tools, and strategies he's used to live the life of his dreams. I think most of us feel like we fall short. I don't know too many people who say, hey, I've lived 100% of my potential, didn't miss a thing. So I think we all fall short. I think there are many things I could have done better, done differently, had I been smarter, had I had more information, more intelligence. But we deal with what we have at a moment in time, make a decision, and then do the best we can with that decision. So I think as entrepreneurs, we shouldn't beat ourselves up. We shouldn't kick ourselves, right? Uh, We're doing the best under the circumstances that we have. Market conditions change, social conditions change, but we have a huge upside opportunity to reach into this vault of potential and to see ourselves playing as near as we can to our best level all the time. Uh, Acknowledging that we're gonna learn more as we go along or we'll gain experience as we go along, which makes us better. But I think the quote really that I created was about don't compare ourselves to others. Let's stop the comparison game because it doesn't matter. We're never gonna have the biggest house or the most money or the fastest boat or the best car or whatever, right? We're gonna do the best we can under whatever circumstances we have and we should be okay with that. So I think this notion of being good enough is really important. I'm good enough for me and I'm reaching to my potential as best I can and I live with myself comfortably. You're a wise man and I'm wondering, is that the result of life experience or is that the result of seeking wisdom? I think I live around some wise people. I have a great wife who's been a counselor to me for 58 years. She's brilliant. She's fantastic. 
She's a really wonderful human being. She's most responsible for our seven children and 19 grandchildren. We all live together on a farm, all three generations. It's fantastic. So we have a great time. So, but I think also along the way, whether it was playing sports or being involved in student government at a very young age, or then going to the White House at a very young age, leading companies, I've always had the opportunity to be around people who are smarter than I am, who are wiser than I am. I've worked really hard at trying to learn what they know, how they think. And I think that's made me a better person. I don't think in and of itself, I'm some kind of special person. I think of an average person who's had a wonderful range of experiences, which has allowed me to have some really good experiences and challenges in my life. And I hope I've met most of them. I've seen you speak a couple of times and I was riveted by one particular story. And when I told everybody excitedly that I was going to be speaking with you, for those that weren't familiar with you, I told the story of the boy at the convenience store, the one that you came across after exercising. And I was hoping that you could start the conversation by sharing that story with the audience, because I think it says so much about who you are and the life that you've built. Well, thank you very much. It was a really interesting story for me because it involved other family members, right? So I go to the same Circle K after every workout and I get my Gatorade. And one day there was a young man there in light blue jeans, white t-shirt, long blonde hair, piercing blue eyes. Everything he owned was in a bag at his feet, clearly a homeless young man. And I said hi to him. He didn't respond to me. I went in and got a Gatorade and I bought one for him. I walked outside, offered him a Gatorade. He held up his hand, didn't say a word to me, but he rejected the Gatorade. Every day I went back to the store. He was there 14, 15 hours a day. I would buy something and offered to him. And every day he rejected me. One day I handed him my cell phone and I said, do you have someone to call? He said the, the really chilling words to me, he said, I have no one to call. I mean, imagine you and I being in a position where we don't have brothers, sisters, moms, dads, family, friends, no one to call. I found out he lived under a bridge about 150 yards from that Circle K. I noticed a couple of times when I went in, he had some new clothes. He had warmer clothes during the wintertime. He had a new sleeping bag. He had more ways to keep warm and so forth. And then one day I went back and he wasn't there. And I asked the clerks inside, where had they gone? I said, well, we're not sure. He, he just got in a car with a young man and drove away. So weeks, months passed and he wasn't there. I kept going back to get my drinks. One day I reached in for my drink and something moved to my left. I looked to my left and there were those piercing blue eyes that I'd seen on that young man. But he looked totally different. His hair was cut. He was clean, suit on, white shirt, tie, wingtip shoes. And I said, I think I know you. And he said, I wasn't very nice to you. And I apologize. And I said, well, I'm interested in your story. Look at you now. I mean, it's really fantastic. I said, you're looking good. And he said, well, I'm working at Raytheon Missile Systems and I work in the Human Resources Department and I'm going to get married in a couple of months. I said, that's fantastic. I'm interested in stories. Can you tell me what happened? He said, well, I rejected you because I'd been abused by my father and I didn't trust adult men. But he said a young woman came in, she reminded me of my mom and she talked to me and she was just so happy and fun and upbeat. And she was always concerned about me. She bought me some clothes to keep me warm, a new sleeping bag, get me through the winter, that sort of thing. But she was just like my mom. I love my mom, but she died at a young age. And then a young man came in, curly hair, about my age. And we started talking and we hit it off. We laughed and had a good time. And I liked him. And then one day he said to me, if you'll come with me, if you're ready, and come with me, I can introduce you to some people who might be able to help you. And uh, he took this young man down to a place called La Frontera, which means the pioneer, which is a, a mental health family at risk kind of place in our community. 
he said, you know, I met psychiatrists, psychologists, caseworkers, and they started peeling back the layers to a point where I was able to rebuild. And so I got my job and I'm working and I have a future. And I said, that's fantastic. I was just so excited for him. And, and so I went home eager to tell our family over dinner what had happened. And as I started to explain things, it became obvious to me that the middle-aged happy woman who helped him was my wife. And the young man who helped him was our son. And in our family, we try not to talk about service as much as we try to do service. And I had done nothing in that situation. But my wife and our son did everything. They opened the window of opportunity for him to make choices about his future. And he made great choices. And so he's got a good future. I think sometimes we pass by people every day that we could reach out to in some way. And yes, some of them struggle and have problems and have difficulties that we can't fix. But every once in a while, there's someone there that if we're willing to extend ourselves, we have the chance to put them on a different track and help them get somewhere else. And I think that's our obligation as human beings, that we have the need and the knowledge and the know-how to help other people. And so let's not allow for invisible people in our lives. Let's not believe that every homeless person doesn't deserve our respect and our willingness to talk to them our willingness to approach them. Let's try to help where we can. We have a finite amount of time together. And so I wanted to get as much as I could from you in the time that we have. I read your book, The Leader Within Us, and it had massive impacts on my life. And so I want to share some of the principles within that book with the audience and have you unpack them for us. Essentially, I'd like to talk about the five principles of personal greatness. The first being committing to a higher level of personal discipline. Can you define what committing to a higher level of personal discipline means to you? It means to have rituals, routines, and behaviors that can reinforce where I'm going with my life every day and that prepare me to be successful. And I often talk about 10, 10, and 10. First thing in the morning when you wake up, don't turn on a TV, don't read a newspaper, don't reach for your cell phone. Spend one minute on the edge of your bed asking what's my highest purpose today. Then spend 10 minutes in gratitude 10 minutes reading inspirational thoughts and 10 minutes journaling in a positive way because it puts your mind in a different place and it prepares you for success for the day. There's nothing about the normal routines that we do. We get up, we walk the dog, we get a cup of coffee, we go to the bathroom, brush our teeth. None of that prepares us for success. It's our mind that prepares us for success. So changing the mindset is really what life is all about. How does time management and our relationship with technology play into this? Well, it's really important. We have to manage technology, not allow it to manage us. We have to be very disciplined about it. When you go home at night, put your cell phone, turn it off and put it by the back door, put it somewhere special. Don't turn it on until you're ready to go to work in the morning. Don't take calls at home. Be a father, a husband, a mom, a dad, a brother, sister, whatever we need to be. But don't be a technology guru at home. Do something else right? Broaden our horizon because we use it all day long. There's no reason for us to use it at home, right? So I think technology is a big burden on our society. It's a narcissistic, individualistic, selfish kind of practice. And I think we need to get away from that as much as possible. Use it for its intended purpose, make our lives more efficient, give us information and so forth, but not abuse it. So I think that's really important. So I think there are a lot of things we can do from a personal discipline viewpoint and time management viewpoint. I think the other thing is that when I was managing the schedule for the president of the United States as appointment secretary to the president, I realized and I began to realize that every minute of every day counts. We get 86,400 seconds. If you live to be my age, 700,000 hours, 28,000 days, life's finite, time is finite. We either manage it or we don't manage it. We either be very effective with it or we aren't. 
And so our job is to really use those 86,400 seconds every day to our advantage and to our gain. And yet you and I both know people who are frivolous with time, who think time will always be there. Well, you and I have had enough friends and family members who haven't gotten an additional 86,400 seconds, right? Their life has ended. And we never know when that's going to happen. And so using that finite come critical and, and learning how to manage that's important. So I have a very strict a discipline around time management. How do you stay present? In this moment, I can see that you are just incredibly present, but I've also been in your presence physically a couple of times. And I've seen that in every conversation you have, that's where you are. And a huge part of time management, in my humble opinion, is time perception, right? Understanding the finiteness of time and understanding it in every moment of every day. How do you stay present and how do you remind yourself, give yourself that sense of urgency that you need to be aware in this moment? I treat every moment as if it's a once in a lifetime experience. You and I will only have these minutes together to talk about these things. We'll never be able to repeat this in the same way. So my job is to intensely focus on what we're talking about, your questions, my comments, this situation, the circumstance. But the same thing is true if you and I go out to a party. We've always been in the presence of others when they're looking over our shoulder and seeing who else is in the room or they don't make eye contact. And how does that make you feel? Well, it makes you feel less important, right? And so our job, I think, is to make each person with whom we have contact and with whom we interact feel good about themselves and feel good about their life and who they are. And if we do that with good eye contact, if we do that by being present in that, that's the least we can do, it seems to me. And when we do that, I found that I also benefit from that. I hear more, I listen better, I learn more. And I think that's really helpful. So I really focus on it. I try to be present for every person with whom I'm having an interaction. I'm not perfect at that, I'm trying to get better at that, but I'm aware of it. And I think that's a first step. How does mindset play a role? One of the things that came out in the book that really took me aback is that you chose to be great. You are a great man by design. Can you talk to me about that choice and what's involved in making that choice? Well, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, wrote something that I really think is important. He said, leadership, greatness and leadership is not a circumstance, but it's a choice and discipline, right? We just lost a great basketball player, one of the greatest of all time. Bill Russell died a couple of days ago. I got to know him and he chose greatness. He chose to engage in a way that made a difference in everything that he did. And I think that's a powerful example to us, right? Yeah, he was a basketball player, but he was so much more than a basketball player. He was involved in the social issues of our day. He was involved in segregation, integration, and racism. He was involved in leading other people to think differently about key moments in time or key issues at the time. And so I hope that all of us have that within us, right? This notion that we can make a difference all the time in every situation, in every circumstance. And so I think we have to be very aware of who we are at every moment in time and what we're talking about, what we're thinking about. And when we do that, I think the compilation of our life, the totality of our life is going to be that we make that difference. And again, I think it's a choice. I think it's a choice. Heck, I, I played, I was drafted by the Golden State Warriors. I played, I was an All-American basketball player, as you said, right? But I wasn't a great basketball player, but I chose to be the best I could be at what I was right? And with my skills and capacities, there are others much better than I was at the time and am today, but we can choose to do the best we can in our 
circumstance every day and every moment. What you're really talking about here is intention, which gets into the second principle, which is to live with purpose every day. I mean, yes. just speaking from a really personal place, like it's not that like an hour gets by me, right? A whole day, a whole week, a whole month, an entire year flies by without intention. And it's a constant struggle. So to live with purpose every day, what does that look like in practical application? Every day when I'm first awake, I swing my legs out of the edge of bed. I sit on the edge of the bed for about a minute and I ask myself, why am I alive today? Meaning what's my purpose today? Some days I have to lead a management. I have to be really good at it. Some days I have to negotiate. That's my highest purpose. Some days I have to be a fabulous husband or father or grandfather. That's my highest purpose. I try to define my highest purpose every day. And oftentimes during a day, there might be multiple purposes. There may be something I have to do really well in the morning, but I got to do something else in the afternoon, right? So this notion of living with purpose is living with intentionality. It's really understanding why we're alive in that moment in time and what we should get extract from that moment in time, what we can give to that moment in time. And if we do that, we become infinitely more successful at everything that we do than if we're just casually going through life, than if we sort of look for a bunch of experiences and hope they come, right? Shakespeare said, we are what we think. Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. And so I think we have to follow the admonitions of those great people to understand that, hey, we have a shot at it here. And it's a period of time where we have physical presence on earth. And so we have to do the best we can if we care with all the resources we have at our disposal to be the best we can. And that starts with purpose. What's our purpose every day? And a great tool to find that purpose is a personal vision statement. Yes. What's comprised of a personal vision statement if one was to lay one out? I think it's the core belief of who you are and why you exist. Mine is to improve the human condition wherever I find it. So that's led us to invest in healthcare companies, for example, because it improves human condition, mental health and physical health. So it's this notion that what can we use personally and in our toolbox to help people? So that's what it is for me. It's I have a friend whose purpose statement is to elevate the lives of everyone he touches. That's great, right? So he spends his day doing that. Well, he and I have combined, we own a company in Houston, Texas. He and I have combined to decide to use that, not for our profit, not to take it public, not to invite private equity in, but to harvest the proceeds and profitability from that. 100% of the proceeds go to marginalized communities and marginalized people. We've just decided that at this point in our lives, what we want to do, him to elevate the lives of others, me to improve the human condition wherever I find it then let's take all the resources we have, the profits we have from that company, and let's invest them. Let's put our money where our mouth is kind of thing, right? I think as entrepreneurs, we have opportunities to do that kind of thing all the time. And so we've chosen to do that. I want to talk about a family vision because this to me was a revolutionary idea, sadly. So, <laughs> but the idea that you run your family with intention. And when we go back to the story originally about the boy at the convenience store, it speaks to a family vision. It speaks to this uniform idea of what is good, what is right, how we should be living our lives. Can you talk to me about how you crafted a family vision and what it looks like in action? Yeah, when my wife and I first got married, we were 21 years old. We spent four years before our first child arrived, uh, you know, just sort of designing our life. And we're living the life today that we designed back then. Were there changes and interruptions and surprises? Sure, along the way, naturally. But we're fundamentally living the life that we designed at that point in time. And so I think this notion that we have a lot of control over 
what we do and how we think. And that a family vision statement is a part of that. So when our kids were anywhere from the youngest three, the oldest 16, 17, we sat down at dinner and we provided three by five cards for everybody. And we said, okay, write down a word that describes our family. And everybody started writing words, happiness, joy, beatings, floggings, whatever it might be, right? So we did all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And then we eliminated words that were similar and we ended up with about 50 words. And then we drafted a statement. Our oldest son and I were responsible for drafting it. We brought it back thinking it was brilliant. The family voted no unanimously. We did about six iterations of that. We finally got a family vision statement that has six concepts in it, about 30 words. And it describes our family. It hangs at the front door, framed a little piece of wood. And uh, people who come in read that first when they first come into our house. And they, by reading that, they know what our family is all about. And I think each of us have to define our family and our purpose for our family, our vision for our family. And so when our children were acting out when they were young, we would take them up to the family vision statement and we'd say, here's the family vision statement. Let's read it together. Now, does your behavior, is it consistent with the vision statement? And they'd be able to figure that out. So there was a lot of self-governance that went on based on the principle of having a family vision statement. And we found it to be very helpful as we raised our children. And I think that that self-governance comes from advocating for self-discipline and personal responsibility. When you look at principle three, acting with intent, there's intentionality throughout all of it, but you really dig deep into discipline and personal responsibility, making a concerted effort to take responsibility for your own actions. Can you unpack that for me? And in this way, the way you live your life versus the way you see the world living. Yeah. So I can't control the world. I can only control me, right? So I can learn from the world about what I may or may not want to do, but I can only control me. And so if I can control me, then acting with intentionality every day and everything that I do becomes pretty important. If I want to be a certain way, if I want to have certain success, if I want to discipline myself in certain ways, I control all of that. And that's why I said earlier, I think we have much more control over our lives than we want to believe. We sometimes make excuses about the world or about people or and them influencing us. I don't think so. I had a chance to read a poem by William Hensley called Invictus. It's the single instrument that converted uh, Nelson Mandela from being a young guy fighting against apartheid to becoming president of South Africa. And the last two phrases, right? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's this notion that we have control of what we think and what we do. And I think we have to act on that every day. And so facing each day and the organization, the time management of each day with intentionality is a critical piece to what we do. And I think sometimes we make excuses as if we don't have control. I think we have huge control over our lives and how we act and react to things. How do the four buckets play into this? Well, I think there are four buckets in our lives. I order them this way, family, business, community, and self. I think almost everything we do every day falls into one of those four buckets. And I would challenge all the entrepreneurs listening to analyze your time for two weeks, do a time log for two weeks. You have 168 hours a week. A third of that time we spend sleeping. What are we doing with the other two thirds of our time? That's really the critical piece. And how good are we with those two thirds of that time? And so I think this notion is that let's acknowledge the four buckets and then let's add up the time that we're spending both in hours and percentage of total time in those four buckets. And let's see how we fall out. I'm currently mentoring 41 CEOs. And I do this basic drill of time log with every single person. And on average, 
I can give them back about 25% of their time. They're just frivolous with time. They're not well-organized and they waste time. And once you start really thinking about how you utilize time in those four buckets, you become better in every bucket. Principle four is making conscious choices. Define what is a conscious choice. Well, I think we very frequently are faced with multiple choices for our time, for our energy, for our relationships. I think it's consciously looking at those and deciding what it is we're going to do. Oftentimes we get swept along with the crowd or we develop a herd mentality or we just don't think about it and we just do so. We, we watch four hours of TV and then we realize I just watched four hours of TV, right? Sort of unconsciously. And so my view is that let's look at every choice we're faced and let's make we're faced with and let's make conscious choices. Let's really think about the choices and then let's decide, right? Do I want a red truck or do I want a blue truck? Let's not get something just because it's there or just because I didn't make a choice. So I think making conscious choices is a very relevant thought process for us as we go through our days. I can go to lunch or I can keep working through lunch. I can call an old friend to make them feel well, or I can continue watching TikTok. And it's very easy to slip into something, you know, we're on a cell phone call, the phone's in our hand, we end the call, you know, it takes pretty easy to go to Instagram from there. And then you slide into other kinds of social media stuff, pretty soon an hour's gone. And you didn't make a conscious choice. You just let yourself slide into that stuff, right? So I think these conscious choices are really critical for us to be effective and successful. Can you tell me the story of your top 100? How did that originate? What is it? So I was 19 years old. I was in a philosophy class. And two things from that philosophy class really stand out. One of which is I, was, I felt compelled to write my top 100 goals. Something happened in that class that made me think about, I need to be premeditated and conscious about what I'm going to do with my life. So I, as any young person, 19 years old would do, I wrote 100 things down. Some of them are really grand and big and some are really soft and squishy and silly, but I wrote them down. You know, I want to learn how to play a guitar, right? So that was one thing, but I also wanted to be president of the United States on the other hand. So I wrote a hundred things down and I've looked at that list every week for now 61 years. And so the question is how many things can you get done if you really focused on it once a week for 61 years? Well, of the hundred, I got 98 done, two of which I'll probably never get done, but I'm working at them. And then I started another list about 20 years ago of another hundred because I was making good progress. And I'm about 50 through that one right now. But what it does is it guides us, right? It shows us what we're capable of doing and what we really want to do. And it guides us to those things. And we can execute the, all of us like to make lists and we like to check off lists. Well, this gives us a guide for our life in a way about the goals that we actually want to set and achieve. And so it's worked well for me. Before jumping into the fifth principle, I can't imagine, I mean, even as I sit here before you, I think, well, Warren's just exceptional, right? Like the life that he leads, most of us can't lead, but respectfully, you would disagree. What are the key differentiators in your mind between what you've been able to accomplish and everyone else? Is it the principles? Is it the discipline? As it is for both of our lives, all kinds of things influence us to become the people we are right now. The way you're leading learning for young entrepreneurs, you know, that's fantastic. How did you get there? Why did you make the choice? I mean, all those kinds of things. I was born poor on an isolated farm in Minnesota near the Canadian border. We grew what we ate. We didn't have a lot of money. 
gas was 25 cents a gallon, a Coke cost a nickel, an ice cream cone cost a nickel. We didn't have enough money to go do that in town. Now we just worked. My dad got to be a pretty good farmer and he bought another farm and another farm. And pretty soon we moved to Southern California and got introduced to surfing and basketball and all that stuff. And my life changed. So sometimes we don't control it. I didn't control where my dad decided we would live, but it changed my life. It changed my perspective, right? Southern California is radically different than an isolated farm in Minnesota. So I changed my perspective and I saw other things I could accomplish. And then I got a college scholarship to play basketball. That changed my life again, right? Met my wife at the university. So I did those kinds of things. And then there are times where just pure chance. I was having lunch with a four-star retired general one day. And he said, have you heard of the White House Fellows Program? And I said, no. He said, well, here's an application. I think you ought to apply. I'd never knew about or thought about the White House Fellows Program, but after a year of competition, 14,000 applicants, I was one of the who was selected. I'm not smarter than anybody else. I'm not above average in any way. I see myself as a pretty average guy who's had some remarkable opportunities presented, which I've taken advantage of, and who's worked hard on the other side, right? I think it takes hard work. So I don't see myself, as you just described me, as being this exceptional person. I see myself as caring a lot. I see myself as trying to be kind. I see myself as trying to be a good person. Haven't always achieved that. I've done some dumb things in my life. I've had some failures in my life, both personally and professionally, but I'm trying hard. And I've married a great woman who guided me and helped me in a lot of ways. We've had wonderful children and grandchildren. So I think it's this notion of we can do our best and our best is good enough. Our best is pretty good. If we just do our best, we're going to be okay. And sometimes that will lead us to unusual circumstances, like me applying for the White House Fellows, being selected, becoming appointment secretary of the president of the United States. Who would have thought at 29 years old, this poor farm kid from Minnesota would have a chance to work with the president of the United States, right? And then to to be involved in being CEO of multiple companies, taking some of those public. The smallest company I think I ever ran was a million dollars in revenue and $50,000 in profit. I thought I was the wealthiest guy in the world. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> well, the last company I had was two and a half billion dollars in revenue, 17,000 employees, 14 countries. That was pretty fun too. But I had to grow into that as an entrepreneur, right? I wasn't ready when I had that first company to lead a multi-billion dollar company, but I grew into that. And part of that was sitting on boards of directors where I learned from other really good people sitting around the table about how to run companies. So circumstances, serendipity, our skills and abilities, when you mix all that together, we can have some pretty interesting lives. And I'm no more interesting than any entrepreneur who's listening to this right now. But I think if we're prepared and we look around our environment, we'll see opportunities that'll take us to new places. And that's what's really exciting, that we can do that. And I've had the chance to do things I never dreamed I would have done in my lifetime. Well, and you've also impacted the lives of so many. The fifth and final principle that we're going to cover is engaging in a cause greater than oneself. And the idea is pretty self-explanatory, but the practical application is a heavy lift because it requires selflessness and bandwidth and empathy on a level that, frankly, many of us don't seem to have. Most of us are just treading water. How does this principle fit into the average person's life? So I believe in servant leadership, and I believe that each of us has the opportunity to serve others and help others. I think when we're having a really bad day, if we go to help someone who's really in bad shape, we'll feel better about ourselves and we'll feel better about helping someone. So I think service is a critical piece. 
There's a theologian named Dieter Uchtdorf who wrote a, something that I like a lot, a principle. He said, lift where you stand. No matter where you find yourself in your life, lift those around you to a higher place. We've all heard the adage, a rising tide raises all boats, right? Well, how about you and I being the rising tide? How about you and I raising the boats around us? How about you and I offering others ourselves and what we have? to make their life better. And when we do that, our lives become better. There's an old poem by Edwin Markham that says, there is a destiny that makes us brothers and sisters. No one goes through life alone. All that we give into the lives of others comes back into our own. I think we're about giving to others. And when we give to others, when we're selfless rather than selfish, when we get rid of our ego, when we go from I, me, my, to us, we, and ours, I think we change the game. We change our mindset. And when we do that, we embrace other people in a way that allows us to serve them. And I really think that's sort of what this journey is about anyway. It's about helping other people along the way. We're all on a path. We're all having experiences. And if we can help each other along the way, engage in a cause greater than ourselves, then I think we've done something good for the world. And I think in the final analysis, that's probably what we're about and what we should be. I once asked an old gentleman, I said, what's this life about? He said, well, we're all just walking each other home. You know, it's this notion of we're just all helping each other out, trying to get there. And if we can have that attitude and get rid of the selfishness in us, I think we take a big step forward. There's a great book that was written by David Brooks, a New York Times columnist. He wrote a book called The Second Mountain. And in it, he describes two mountains. The first mountain is the mountain of acquisition. It's all about ego and legacy and material wealth and getting to the top and personal freedom and all that stuff. There's a river that runs between the two mountains, and we've got to get across that river. We can swim it. We can build a bridge across it. But the second mountain is not the mountain of acquisition. It's the mountain of contribution. That's where we lose our ego. That's where we get committed to cause. That's where we really have legacy. And the top of that mountain is called transcendence. And transcendence reflects the higher calling, the greater purpose. And so I challenge all the entrepreneurs listening to your program who listen and are so enriched by what you do. I think we got to ask ourselves, how do I get to the higher calling? How do I get to the greater purpose? And if we are asking that question and moving in that direction, then we are helping our society and ourselves and our families in a really noble way. And I think that's what life's all about. We spent a lot of time looking back. I'd like for you to look forward. What are your hopes for the future? What are your ambitions? So in 2020, when COVID hit, my wife and I in September that year sort of realized we didn't have a plan for the next 25 years. And so we decided to take a drive. And so we took a drive. It was 5,000 miles, 14 days. At the end of that time, we came back and had a plan for the next 25 years. As I look forward, I don't look back very often. And I don't think about the past hardly at all. But you know, my best day is tomorrow. And the greatest deal I'm going to do is next week. And the great adventure I'm going to be on is 30 days from now. The future is so wonderful and so exciting. We get so caught up in the drudgery of life and the problems of life and the excuses of life. The fact is that the human experience is an extraordinary experience. And we can make the future what we want it to be. And there are going to be bumps in the road and there are going to be challenges and there are going to be all kinds of things that move us around. But the reality of it is that this life is a gift. And this opportunity that we have to run companies and have families and engage in communities is so fun and so exciting. If we just look on the upside of life, it's really good. It's really positive. You know, we have 
96% of people who work every day. We only have 4% unemployment, but we focus on the 4% unemployment, right? We focus on the challenges of our society. So much about society today is focusing on the negative. The reality is there's much more positive going on in the world than there is negative, much more positive. There are great families everywhere. There are great kids. The millennials are fantastic, right? They're gonna, they're gonna change the world, right? Gen Z is gonna have even more impact. So I just see life as the upside. I see life as being wonderful. And does it have problems in it? Yeah, am I gonna be challenged? Certainly. Am I going to get bruised a bit? Absolutely. But the good always exceeds the bad. That's Warren Rustan. For more on Warren or to buy his book, visit warrenrustan.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.